welcome to this part two of episode 24 of our podcast, Dynamite Divorce and Other Matters. I'm attorney Kevin Johnson. I'm attorney Barry And I'm Seaboy. guest attorney Margie Nielsen. And what she really means is celebrity guest, <laughs> Margie Nielsen. And we're happy to have her here as we continue our discussion of the use of criminal records as they relate to family law. I've already learned a lot in episode one. And as we continue our discussion, we hope to learn more and I'll learn things I should have known already. I think, Kevin, one thing that we haven't really talked about is what if you're the person representing yourself and you know you have a criminal record? How can mm-hmm. you kind of look out for defending yourself and, and what can you do? What sorts of arguments should you be making um, in case someone's trying to bring it up and you don't think it's relevant? You think that the judge shouldn't consider it. Maybe you've made a lot of changes in your life. You know, maybe you are a recovering alcoholic or drug abuser. You're clean and sober. This happened 20 years ago. I don't want it brought up. So, Kevin, maybe uh, you could give some perspective on how you've argued against criminal records being brought in. Before we go further, this podcast is no substitute for the specific legal advice you will get by consulting one-on-one with a licensed attorney in your state or country. We hope that before taking any action that might change your life or your financial situation, and before making decisions that might significantly affect your children and the people around you, you do find and meet with a licensed attorney. Now, now on, with, on the with the show. Well, one thing, if, if you're defending on the use of a criminal record, you don't have to resort to the searching that you've mentioned, Margie, because you know, right? You know what you've done. Usually people know if they've been in, in the in jail or they arrest, unless I had a client who'd been arrested over 20 times and and uh, that was a little bit of a problem. Uh, it was more of a problem that I didn't find out until well into the case, but that's another point about client interviewing. Uh, anyway, uh, in that case, he well knew. And so you hope that enough time has passed that it's it's becoming, you know, into the rear view mirror of, you know, it's not last week. For me, DUIs or, you know, any kind of driving related offenses are a problem if the person's going to be driving the child. And so if they've, for example, had a DUI, what have they done? You know, especially if they've had three DUIs, what have they done to get their life straight? And have they enrolled in a, are they, you know, recovery? Uh, What have they done? Have they had a clean driving record for the last six years? I think the passage of time to me is is a big thing. And you mentioned if it's somebody else, if it was uh, an accusation by somebody else during a custody case, you know, you could say, well, you know, in a sense, implying that other person was crazy. They made all kinds of accusations. This is a different situation entirely. But today I'm learning more about what's available to search. And I'm happy to hear that the police have that arrest uh, on arrest list on their website. But uh, generally, my thing with uh, criminal matters, it's all of a package. It's, is that person safe around the child? And if, if there's a record of, a you know, uh, arrest and uh, abuse of the parent, has it ever been in the, in the presence of the child? Does it have anything to do with the child? I mean, it can be argued it always has something to do with the child, but that would that's clinging to some thread of a defense would be that it never happened in front of the child or it happened before the child was born or 
something like that. Uh, if the person, I've had people attend anger management voluntarily, uh, just as a defensive thing, say enroll in anger management or whatever. I'm nowadays with COVID, it's got to be online, and look, I haven't found a really an anger management course that really satisfies me, but something like that where they they say, and oh, no, I've I've gone to counseling, I've enrolled in anger management of this or that, but uh, it's always bad, especially if the person has a record of something violent. If it's shoplifting or passing bad checks, it goes to their honesty, and that's not good because you you can see them being impeached by bringing up a crime of dishonesty is a good way to show that a witness can't be trusted. But if it's a crime of violence or an offense against the person, it's hard to live that down. You might have to say that we'll start off with supervised visits or uh, there'll be a counselor involved in in uh, the child you know being together with this person at least for a while. I think another way to use an arrest record um, sort of to bolster what you're saying, Kevin, is if you find that there's a case, you know, and you, and you maybe you don't remember it, but you look it up, you figure out which year it was, you go to the clerk's office, you get your case number specific to whatever incident you're concerned about someone looking into, you can request the court file, which will almost certainly have the actual police report. Um, in it. And you can use that to demonstrate that the only people on scene were you and another adult. Uh, the person making the complaint was not injured because, you know, they have to list whether there are injuries noted. Did somebody go to the hospital? So those actual reports that you can get out of a court case file that you might not be able to get in full from the police department because they redact some things, you can make photocopies of those again at the courthouse, get those certified, and then you can show that you didn't mess with the documents at all, but there was only one person there, nobody had a reported injury, nobody went to the hospital, or you had an injury, the complaining witness didn't, you know, because we hear a lot that a man will mm. call the police because there's a domestic violence incident and he is being attacked and then he ends up being the one arrested, you know? So like, if that's a situation, that's one where you yeah. want to go and, you know, try to find the full police report so that you can demonstrate you had scratches or bruises or whatever. The other person did not have any injuries. There were no children present. Um, so you can use it that way, but I agree. It's always very defensive once you already have an arrest that you're trying to explain away. Um, so you can also try uh, to get it expunged or sealed, <laughs> um, but that <laughs> does take a while. Um, it is something that now, especially because of delays related to COVID, it's probably going to take upwards of a year to get it completely off the records. And then if someone um, already had a copy of that record, they could still use it. So this is something to, you know, bear in mind. Like if you are the victim of a crime and you think the other person might be trying to get it expunged or sealed, go get the record so that later, if it comes up again, which we would hope that it doesn't, but if it does come up again, as Barry said, sometimes much further down the line, somebody makes a threat that's similar to what happened before. You need to have a copy of your record. At the same time, if you have a past that you think might come up and now you have kids and now it's, you know, something that you're worried about, 
definitely, you know, talk to an attorney about whether there's something to do about the record. Um, maybe you could have it expunged. Maybe you could have it sealed. Maybe the record still comes in because somebody had an independent copy of it. But at least then you can say this criminal court judge who looked at my whole history decided that I was a person worthy of having my record expunged or sealed. And I think that that would be another way to sort of counteract the evidence that that's being uh, presented against you. Margie, over the years, we've spoken about expungement and sealing of criminal records, often in the context of employment. Uh, could somebody else, could they ever get a job? Would a minor conviction keep them from working? But I wondered if you're still actively doing expungement and sealing of records. Yes, I am actively helping people seek expungement and sealing. Um, unfortunately, especially in Chicago, as a result of the pandemic, there have been increased delays in having cases actually heard by the court. Um, just recently, the court has been uh, working on procedures to begin bringing cases back up, but there is over a year of backlog at this point. So it's not a fast process, but yes, I am working with Ellen, um, my law partner, to assist with that. I know uh, Greater Chicago Legal Clinic also has a program where uh, they assist with expungement and sealing. But it's an area of law that has changed so much in the last few years, probably even since we had our last discussion. As it stands now, almost every case <coughs> in Illinois is subject to uh, sealing there are very few exceptions, DUI, domestic battery being two notable ones for purpose of our conversation. Convictions for DUI and domestic battery or supervisions for DUI cannot be expunged or sealed, but almost every other type of case, including murder, can eventually be sealed in Illinois. So when I said that you know, somebody might try to change the history of their record. It's really a significant possibility. So establishing access to those court records and getting copies is very important if you are the person that's trying to preserve the record. And if you're the person that has started a new life and is looking to have a, a fresh clean start um, in life, it's important to take advantage of the opportunities to have the access to those records greatly minimized. Kevin, we have had many discussions about the fact that it is <laughs> very nearly impossible, if not actually impossible, to completely erase the record of an arrest or conviction. Um, the internet mm -hmm. is one reason People maintaining, you know, separate copies of a record is, is another reason. But it's still, I think, an important thing to take care of on either side of the issue. You just have to know where to start. And I'd say here that that's a, probably an important caveat that the person, a, a non-attorney who is searching the Internet, has to be aware that there are all these sites that glean information from public records, and for a fee, they'll say, okay, pay $20, pay $30, right. and we'll give you a background check. Do you want to know about your potential boyfriend's background? <laughs> pay us $50, we'll do a background check. So there are various, some of them may be very legitimate, but the problem is that there are so many, they've proliferated, and they're really you making use of some of the public record to make money, to... Uh, 
really on a border, right. borderline scam, uh, let me sell you this record. When you can, you know, the public generally can, so for a small fee, get it directly from the clerk's office mm-hmm. for maybe $6. Why should I pay $30 when I could get it for $6? So that's, uh, that's, the, that's the thing I've observed about the internet. And the unwary person says, oh, let me look, type in Google search uh, background check. Oh, you get a thousand websites. One thing that occurs to me, too, is you could do the old fashioned way. You could hire a private investigator. I think you're looking at about one hundred fifty dollars to uh, have a background check of whatever quality. I, I'm sure they would tap into many of the same available public databases. But what well, I guess Kevin, have you ever done that? Maybe once or twice in 20 years. Yeah, because it's expensive. But I guess what I just heard you say, maybe I was hearing it clearly, is that you cannot be assured that your, for example, your daughter's new boyfriend, Ted, is on the up and up just because you search everywhere you can and no sign of arrests or convictions for Ted appears in your searching. It may be that things have been expunged or sealed or... He's been arrested many times and always slipped out of a conviction with good lawyering or false accusations, but could have had a lot of twists and turns of the legal system that don't come up in the average internet search, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Did I did I get that right? Are you are you saying don't be don't don't feel that you've got the full picture just because a quick internet search shows no no record? Well, actually, that's the flip side of what I'm saying. Oh. Uh, the 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 main thrust of what I was saying was that person, the unwary person doing an internet search, is going to find an abundance of promises saying, uh, "We found a ton of information on so and so. Pay us twenty dollars, or get or subscribe to our service, and for fifteen dollars a month, we'll provide you all the background searches you want." So, in some of those websites, I mean, it, I don't criticize someone who's doing a legitimate business, like a detective, you know, that's doing a little extra money. But I think some of these these websites are a little dubious in my my view, that they're they're charging high prices for records that are available, not maybe so easily available, but why well, pay twenty dollars when you get a record for six dollars. So that's I think that's a value. What what we're talking about today is that we're we're uh, saying how do we get the the official documents from the government source, as opposed to a third party who's uh, maybe done a little bit of work, and then they're they're selling it over and over again for exorbitant prices. Right. We're uh, nearing the end of part two here of episode 24. In this final five minutes or so, can I ask one question? Uh, this is the idea of police reports. Okay. And we haven't really touched on that, but some people make it a habit to walk into the police department and make a report. And they, you know, they don't call the police, but they go in and make a report. And I've tried to talk to people about that because they've come in and they I made a police report. I made a police report. He wouldn't return the child on time. I made a police report or whatever. I made a police report. And I'm thinking, hmm, what good do they think that is? Because just that you said it to the police officer and they wrote it down doesn't make it true. And I think it doesn't it's still hearsay. I think it still could be objected to because police report doesn't equal anything in the legal system. Am I right? I agree with that. I think that 
when we were talking before about police reports related to domestic abuse situations, it was important because so many victims of abuse never take that step, you know, and then there's a question about, did something really happen? Did you even call the police? And then again, we talked about how police reports note physical facts, like whether there were injuries, whether there were other people present. Okay, so a police report can be important for that. And those are observations of the police officer. So if you actually subpoena the police officer, you know, those observations made at the time can be used in a hearing. But anyway, so that's separate. But people who go in and make police reports about visitation issues like somebody's late or even using police reports about things that you might think are significant, but now the general populace don't think are that big of a deal anymore. For example, use of cannabis. If you go to a court or a child's rep and say, I have 10 police reports that I made because he was late 10 times to visitation and he has, you know, an arrest for cannabis from 10 years ago, you're probably not going to be taken very seriously. And it might be harmful, in fact, to the impression that that person has of you because you don't want to expose the children to police interaction if you don't have to. So it's going to be really bad if you brought the kids with you into the police station to make a police report against the other party. So first of all, that's don't do that. And second of all, if it looks like you're really nitpicking the other person and just trying to make them look bad, that almost never goes over well, you know? So choose what you bring to the child's rep or the court's attention carefully. I advise people to try and avoid calling the police. I mean, except to an active crime scene. Of course, if, you know, if you can grab a phone during a physical assault or something, definitely call 911. But in any other thing where there's an, a disagreement about visitation or or something where you don't actually need the police actively at your house, I tell people that the police hate being called to your house for what they consider to be a domestic, where they have to wonder, am I going to die in this encounter with these citizens, right? So I tell people, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been telling people to go and let the police know that there's a problem brewing at your house. So for example, uh, my boyfriend moved out. I don't trust him. I think he might try to break in or whatever. I tell people, well, go tell that story to the police and they'll brush you off. They'll say, look, lady, you want to fill out a police report? or Oh, no, no, no. I just want to let you know. I live at 123 Elm Street and we might have a problem here. Do it in the daytime when the senior officers are present, you know, during the day, weekdays. And I think somehow it gets in their head because then later, if there's an incident and you call and the alleged abuser goes running out to the police when they arrive and say, Papa, and the, the alleged victim can't know what's going on, but they're talking to the police, talking to the police, and pretty soon the police kind of change and it's like, well, okay. And, you know, she's crazy, officer. I think she's she's going to hurt herself. She was locked in the closet and would have the child. I think she might have a gun. You know, whatever he ran out and said, and they come in and they, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, okay, lady. You know, they don't, and the victim, if the police go away and don't take the victim seriously, I think you'll agree it's devastating. Then they feel like the abuser has the entire legal system on their side. 
the police won't even listen to me. So to get around that, I advise them if they think there's going to be something where they might see the police at their house to go and inform the police what's going on on background, not fill out a police report, but just tell them and, you know, let them know, which I think the police kind of appreciate. Then if they're called and the uh, offending party, alleged abuser goes out running out and try to get a first word in about the story is they've already got the story at 123 Elm Street, apartment 10. And I think they remember. It has worked for me in the past. But that's not giving a police report. That's In fact, if they say, would you like to fill out a police report? No, no, that's fine. Just want to let you know. Just want to let you know. It's just kind of troubles brewing. Might get a call. Here's what's going on. You know, I have custody or I have, and he's only got weekends, but he's trying to come on the weekdays. Whatever is coming up, they get a little background. Is that wild or does that make sense? Barry, what do you think? Well, I haven't encountered it in quite that manner. I, I do encounter that kind of a situation in, uh, I think both parties make some effort to control the narrative. In other words, what's really happening, what did happen. And so sometimes there's a preemptive move on the part of either party to get to the police first, sometimes before an incident, sometimes during an incident, and maybe both are calling the police at the same moment. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, also, sometimes the police are called by a a third party. It could be a friend or it could be a neighbor uh, or some family member that says, okay, they're fighting. I'm concerned. Someone's going to get hurt. Uh, 911, please, but somebody better come. So I take it on a case-by-case basis. I'm, uh, I guess my general advice to clients is that if you have a fear for your safety, course number one, is that you have a basis for calling 911. So if you feel legitimately threatened and you're not able and, and you need immediate action taken, you know, don't hesitate to call 911. Uh, don't call me at first because uh, I'm not gonna I'm, <laughs> I'm not gonna come right away. You know, but you know, call the police if you're in immediate danger and uh, and have them address the situation. But it's a it's a case by case. You know, it, it depends on. You know, what, what's the extent of the danger and, you know, is the uh, minor child witnessing it and who's there at the scene? Is there some way that you can make yourself safe? I, I did have a case fairly recently where the, uh, the mother of a child was uh, attacked by her, her ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend and then he joined in the battle. And so they're both punching her. And this is in front of the little girl. So someone calls the police and the police come. So they, it's a matter of, again, sorting it out. What, what really happened in this jumbled mass of, you know, who struck the first blow? You know, who's the most seriously injured out of that fracas? But those are the calls. that it, It's hard to get those calls, but those calls do come in. Yeah. I'm absolutely on it with uh, immediate danger. I, in no way would I discourage anyone from calling 911 for an immediate danger. And what you describe is trouble brewing, especially if her ex-boyfriend, Bruce, now has his new girlfriend, Amber, and Amber has been texting up a storm or threatening or, you know, acting like a real poop, to leave the legal term, and it looks like something might be brewing. Maybe he brings her in the car for pickup of the child, and she's giving the mom the finger, or, you know, just, she thinks this woman is trouble. That for me, would be 
grounds to go to their local police in the daytime, in the weekdays, and have a chat with them and say, there's trouble brewing. Just want to let you know how it might come at you. You might get a call. He's got a new girlfriend. I'm hopefully nothing will happen, but here's the whole, all the players at 123 Elm Street, you know, apartment 10, just so you know. And I think, although I don't have any anybody saying, I've never heard that be a bad thing that, you know, give the police the background, but don't fill out any paperwork. You know, don't bother. That's my thought. But yes, call 911 for immediate danger. Um, well, we're, we're coming to the end of part two. Any final summary, Margie, would you like to? I just wanted to say that we talked about reasons that a arrest record might not be able to be used, maybe because there's no conviction. Maybe somebody says it's hearsay. Maybe you can't get a proper copy of it. I don't want anyone who is listening to this, who is a, a victim of abuse or of a crime to think that because they couldn't get the record or they think they have the record, but the judge won't let them show the record to the court. I don't want anyone to think that that means that they can't testify about their own experience. You know, there, these are two different things. What you suffered during that incident is a completely different thing than the piece of paper that a police officer created and whether that police officer's paperwork can come into your court case. So if you tried to say, I called the police and here's the arrest report and the judge says, no, 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 I can't take arrest reports. That's hearsay. Don't just stop. You know, don't think that you, that means you can't say what happened. You have to just take a moment, take a deep breath. Cause that'll be upsetting but take a deep breath and say, okay, well, on May 1st, 2019, what happened was, and so, you know, and then tell the story, you know, don't get knocked off of your plan and just think that you now can't say anything about that incident because that's not what the judge means. The judge just means I can't look at that piece of paper you're trying to hand me. That's a piece of encouragement that your own experience delivered in, in a smooth way Maybe we talked about this in a previous episode, Barry, having a structure to your presentation, but it might be chronological. You might have already made yourself a list of dates when things happen and come through it, you know, like, well, I met him at a, and we met at the laundromat on July 1st, 2008. We dated for a while, then he moved in in 2012. You know, that sort of chron chronology uh, then this, then that. Then I was pregnant. I had my first with him. That helps build the story. And then things became violent. Or then we got into an argument. Or he lost his job and came home drunk. It helps to kind of, I think, lead the judge through and have a structure. Well, uh, thank you, Margie, for being our first guest on our podcast. And uh, any, sorry, Barry, I, I asked Margie if she had any closing words. But is there anything else that we should add? I think that about wraps it up. I'm attorney Kevin Johnson. I'm attorney Barry. C. And I'm Boyd. guest attorney Margie Nielsen. And we'll see you on our next episode. Thank you very much.